inspired. We love God, we ought to be able to talk about Him. With the latest in breaking news and information from the Vatican to the White House and everything in between. to Jesus Christ. This is not your host, Joe McClain. This is your producer, Adrian Fonseca here. And praise be to God. Today is the day after Thanksgiving, and we are not in studio today. Joe and I are at home asleep. Rudy is at home asleep in California, probably. Oh, definitely. It's probably like three in the morning or something in California. The sun's not out. But here, we are in bed. We are asleep. Maybe we're at Holy Mass. We're doing something. But we're not in studio because today is a pre-recorded show and we will be back in studio on Monday with our regular, regularly scheduled programming. So don't worry. Everything goes back to normal on Monday. But for today, we have a great show today lined up with Ryan Grant on his book, Heroines for Christ. It's an old book that he republished and it's all about female saints. Now, it's a great interview. You're not going to want to miss it. Uh, but for the first 15 minutes of the show, we're going to do our typical saying of the day, gospel of the day. No breaking news because, I mean, we don't know what the breaking news is. We're not in studio. So there's going to be saying of the day, gospel of the day, and maybe we might have time for a short reflection on the gospel of the day, depending on how it goes. Because today, you know, I'm going to do a longer saying of the day since we have a little bit more time. So we'll see how much time we have for the uh, gospel reflection. Today is going to be an awesome saying as well. And uh, the second hour, there's going to be no game show, so no game show. Don't call in, but keep your phones on hand because you can call in on Monday. Monday, we'll be back in studio regular for you to call in on Monday for the game show. Okay, without further ado, we're going to pray. We're going to do Saint of the Day. We're going to do Gospel of the Day. We're going to have a short gospel reflection if we have time, and then we're going to throw you into the interview with uh, Ryan Grant on his book, on the book that he published, Heroines for Christ. All right, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession, was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me, amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. And now, the saint of the day. The saint of the day is Saint Leonard of Port Maurice. He was born in Paul Jerome Casanova on December 20th, 1676, in Port Mauricio. Then was part of the Republic of Genoa. His father, a ship captain, was a man of faith. Five of his six children went on to become religious. When the boy who would then become St. Leonard was 13, he went to study at the Roman College in Rome, the city where his uncle lived. One day, he happened to visit the church connected with the Franciscan convent of St. Bonaventure on the Palatine Hill. Just as the friars were chanting Compline at the words, Converta nos Deus salutaris noster, or Convert us, O God, our salvation, the young man was converted from his worldly aspirations to supernatural ones. Listening to God's call, he entered the Reformed branch of the Franciscan order. He took his habit in 1697, taking the name of Leonard. After making his novitiate at Ponticelli, he completed his studies at the principal house of the Reformed branch at St. Bonaventure al Paletino in Rome. After his ordination in 1703, he remained there as a professor. Leonard longed to go to China as a missionary, for it was his great desire to convert souls for Christ and to shed his blood for the faith. 
However, he was soon seized with a severe gastric hemorrhage, becoming so ill that he was sent to his native Porto Marciso in the hope that he might recover his health. St. Leonard did recover, and he attributed his restoration to the health of Our Lady's intercession. During his illness, he had promised that should his prayers for recovery be granted, he would devote his life to the conversion of sinners. And he kept his promise, spending 44 years preaching popular missions, converting every section of Italy and the island of Krozyska. Leonard at one time felt certain distaste for mission work after his superiors laid his duty upon him. He understood it to be the will of God, and he consecrated himself wholeheartedly to it, becoming one of the greatest missionaries and apostles in the history of the church. He chose as the patron of his missions the great Dominican saint, preacher, and miracle worker, St. Vincent Ferrer, whose picture he would also use to heal the sick, or to bless the sick, rather. Around the age of 30, he began to preach in Port Maurice and its vicinity. Leonard's preaching was marked by many extraordinary conversions. The power of his words, coupled with his holiness and extraordinarily austere and penitential life, made a deep impression even on the most hardened sinners. St. Leonard used to preach to many thousands in open squares in every town where he went. The churches were too small to contain the multitudes. Entire towns flocked to hear the sermons, so that it was not uncommon to see crowds of fifteen to 20,000 gathering to listen to the saint. Miraculous conversions followed his preaching everywhere. St. Leonard preached several times a day, heard confessions for countless hours, gave advice, established peace between warring factions, all without neglecting his own prayers, including three hours of mental prayer each day, celebrating daily mass with great devotion and precision, and saying the divine office on his knees. The saint stressed the importance of the practice of maintaining oneself in the presence of God at all times. He recommended people to exclaim many times throughout the day, and especially at the beginning of every action, My Jesus, mercy. That way, when they can pray always, even amidst their daily occupations, and do everything with pure intention, looking to God alone in every action they perform. In 1716, he founded the solitude of St. Mary of Encontro near Florence, a house of retreat where the friars could retire from time to time to renew their spiritual strength, applying themselves seriously in silence in great austerity to the work of their own sanctification. The religious would withdraw there in turn to then return to their convents and missionary labors, filled with re renewed zeal to work for the glory of God and the salvation of souls. Leonard was a superior in Florence and Prato for over 20 years before returning to Rome in 1736 to become guardian of the convent of St. Bonaventure. He was an austere, reserved, and silent man, but also kind and patient in his treatment of others. The devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary, and in particular the Immaculate Conception, perpetual adoration of the Blessed Sacrament, and devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus were some of the topics he promoted. It was St. Leonard who composed, and especially as a reparation for the sin of blasphemy, the divine praises we say at the end of every benediction, you know, the blessed be God, blessed be his holy name. It is to St. Leonard we owe the devotion to the Station of the Cross. Wherever he went, he promoted the Via Crucis. Not a mission went by without him leading the people in this pious meditation of the Passion of our Lord. St. Leonard erected 571 Station of the Cross throughout Italy, including the famous stations of the Colosseum in Rome. While St. Leonard's great life work were the, were the missions, he also preached many retreats to both religious and lay people. The theme, the theme was most often the Passion of Christ. He wrote that one of the cures for the ills of men and of the society was a daily meditation on the Passion. It would bring people back in touch with reality, rearrange their priorities, and put everything into proper perspective, 
causing them to grow in love for Christ. St. Leonard's love for Our Lady led him to ardently desire to see and do the utmost to procure the dogmatic definition of the Immaculate Conception. He called the most important cause in the world because every other good depended on it. Peace, happiness, triumph over heresies, triumph of the church. He urged prelates to petition Rome for this. The strains of his missionary labors and severe mortification completely exhausted St. Leonard's body. After his missions in Lucca and Bologna, he was stricken by fever, but nevertheless journeyed back to Rome in obedience to the wishes of Pope Benedict XIV, who made him promise he would not die in any other city but Rome. Even in his last days, half dead, the saint insisted on saying Mass, though with great difficulty, for a single Mass is worth more than all the wealth of the world, said St. Leonard. On November 26, 1751, St. Leonard arrived in his beloved monastery of St. Bonaventure in Rome, dying the same evening at 11 p.m. at the age of 75. Great crowds came to see and venerate his body. God glorified him in life, but still more after his death by numerous miracles. His still partially incorrupt body was kept at the high altar of the church of San Bonaventura at Palentino until 1997, when it was transferred to his native town. There it can be seen in a glass urn at the Cathedral of Impera Porta Maceso. Only a relic of one of his ribs remains in the church of St. Bonaventure in Rome. At the adjacent convent, one can visit the saint's former cell, transformed into a little museum. St. Leonard was beatified by Pope Pius VI in 1796. Blessed Pius IX, a Franciscan tertiary, canonized him in 1867. He was named the patron saint of parish missions by Pope Pius XI. St. Leonard left us many writings, the most well-known of which is his beautiful book about the most precious treasure we have on earth, the Mass. His sermons, letters, ascetic, and, dev- and devotional writings have been preserved, but only a small part has been translated into English. His most famous sermon, The Little Number of Those Who Are Saved, was the one he relied on for the conversion of great sinners. And you can actually find me reading that on a number of places on the Catholic Drive Time YouTube channel. Santa Leonarde ora pro nobis. The gospel of the day comes from Luke chapter 21, verses 29 through 33. Jesus told his disciples a parable. Consider the fig tree and all the other trees when the buds burst open. You see for yourself and know that summer is now over. In the same way, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Amen, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to Jesus Christ. And yes, our gospel today, that's praise be to God for the, for the gospel for today. And this is very apropos thinking about, you know, the end of the world because the, the liturgical calendar is over now. We're going into Advent, which is the new year. And so, you know, we celebrate New Year's on January 1st, but the liturgical New Year begins in Advent because Advent is what? It is a looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. It's coming to the birth of Christ. And so we are now beginning the new liturgical year this coming Sunday. And what is happening? Our Lord, uh, well, the church in her wisdom had decided to have this gospel here, thinking about the end of the world, thinking about the coming of the end of the world. 
Now, what is meant here when it's referred to as the, when we talk about the fig tree, right? So the fig tree is mentioned over and over again. And in other context, our Lord curses the fig tree and kills it. But here he says, he tells him a parable said, consider the fig tree and all the other trees. When their buds burst open, you see for yourself and know that summer is now near. Why do you know that summer is now near? Well, Cornelius Lape tells us that the, that the fig tree, it only comes out. The trees, like the actual leaves come out. During the summer and during the winter, the tree is dead and it come out kind of resurrects during the summer. And at the same time, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Okay. So the kingdom of God is near. What is happening when our, when Cornelius Lapide looks at this, he anal- he takes it and analyzes and analyzes it. I can't speak today. He ana- analyzes it and looks at when will the world end? Now, there's a number of theories that he, that Cornelius Lapide proposes. Here's a couple of his theories. He says, one theory, he says, many suppose the world will come to an end after it has existed for 6,000 years as it was created in six days. So we're thinking of the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, the world was created in six days. And therefore, the belief was, according to many, was that the earth would end after 6,000 years. He says he talks a little about this more in the apocalypse, but we don't have access to that just yet. Another theory, he says, is that something that there would be just as many years after Christ to the end of the world as they were from creation to Christ. Now, what would that mean for us? Um, well, there's different theories about how old the world was from creation to the beginning of to the Christ. And that just depends on many people's idea. Now, that could mean it could, we would go to 3000 AD. It could mean other other things. But the common opinion is that before the creation, there was about 3,000 years was a, is kind of a ballpark answer, uh, but we don't actually know for sure. He said a third opinion is that, they, that there would be as many jubilees after Christ as there were in his earthly life, and that would put us at AD 1700. And we're already past that date, so we know that's not true. He says another one was that they would end at AD 800, which is you know past uh, whenever Cornelius Lapide was alive. So he was saying that's obviously not true either. A fifth calculation was put forth by the contemporary who said that the that it was fixed on 1666, you know, giving that 666 ideology there. And Chris Lopez says, nope, that's not true either. These are not good. Not very good answers. Now, he goes on to say, but the father only knows the time when the world will end. Only the father knows. No one else. Now, what does that mean exactly when he says that no one else knows? Well, well, real quickly from St. Augustine and many other uh, fathers of the church, they say that he does not know qua man. He doesn't know as man. He does not know the judgment. But as God, he does know. That is to say, Christ as man knoweth it not by virtue of his manity, but by his divinity. And that makes it true that because he is God, but he is man at the same time. Now, praise be to God, we're going to go to a break. And when we come back, we're going to have our interview with Ryan Grant on heroines for Christ. What do these, these saintly women have contributed to Holy Mother Church? All this in just a moment. Howdy, this is Adrian Fonseca, producer of the Catholic Drive Time Show. Heard Monday through Friday, 6 a.m. Central and 7 a.m. Eastern, right here on the Guadalupe Radio Network. And I'm proud to tell you that Real Estate for Life is an underwriter of Catholic Drive Time. Real Estate for Life connects home buyers and sellers to real estate agents while supporting pro-life organizations, offering their clients a faith-based experience. They are online at realestateforlife.org. That's realestateforlife.org. God love you. 
If there's one thing atheists and theists can agree on, it's the fact that we've all felt the problem of God's hiddenness and have cried out, Where are you, God? The difference, however, is atheists think this is a reason to reject God and theists don't. Why? Well, first, God is not entirely hidden. Sure, we can't know he exists by seeing or touching him, but we can know he exists through logic and reason. There's also good reason to believe God has revealed himself through Jesus of Nazareth. If Jesus is raised from the dead, then everything he said is true. Second, God's in-your-face presence wouldn't necessarily make things better. Even on the natural level, we don't like overbearing parents. Why would we want God to be that way? So while God's partial hiddenness is a mystery, it's not a good reason to embrace atheism. I'm Carlo Broussard with a ready reason for Catholic Answers, catholic.com. By a Zoom chat is Ryan Grant. He is with Mediatrix Press, and they have a brand new book out on the heroines of Christ. Praise be to God. Good morning to you, Ryan. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being on with us. Uh, heroines for Christ. This looks like a very good book. Now, this is a reprint of a book that was published a long time ago. Tell us about it. So it was uh, first published in 1939. It's an anthology of essays by Jesuits that retell, uh, frankly, brilliant uh, histories of 15 female saints throughout the course of the Catholic Church. And so it's uh, from ancient times, from medieval and early modern times, as well as comparatively recent times. Um, do you know, have any sense of why uh, this book was edited by Father Joseph Huslin? He was a, a, a Jesuit. Do you have any sense of why he chose these particular saints to tell their stories? He doesn't tell us specifically why these particular ones um, except that they, they all had a, a flair. Their, their story could be told in a very dramatic way. And one thing with the Jesuits and the history of the Ratio Studiorum, that is the Jesuit curriculum, back when uh, this was all a good thing, um, <laughs> <laughs> was that they, um, they emphasized drama. Even the very early days mm. uh, of the Jesuits in the 16th and 17th centuries, part of their curriculum was drama. And they had to learn how to construct a play, write a play, act, direct in, in plays, and they often would. Um, and there's even secular books on continental drama actually include sections on the Jesuits because what they did was highly influential to drama schools in general. And so the, the point of it all was that when you would present the faith, when you would go to far off lands or you'd be in England or in Germany or wherever, presenting the faith to Protestants, that there would be a sense of the divine drama of sacred scripture and in, in the lives of the saints, the history of the church, and that all these things could be presented in a way that's going to affect man as, as, as this great and incredible story that God has given us. And so they take, uh, because, because you can read a book, this hum, humdrum lives of the saints, our mm. uh, butlers, basically relating, you know, what these, these people did. It's all great. Sometimes it's very inspiring, but oftentimes too, you get older books, um, and I was actually surprised. My wife said, oh, this is a great book. I'm looking, oh, man, edited by Jesuits in the 40s. <laughs> Uh-oh. It's like, okay, but she said it was highly influential to her when she was a teen. So I'm reading it. And it's like, wow, this is really good. Yeah. Because these authors took that Jesuit flair for drama mm. and the dramatic and employed it to the actual facts of history to turn it into this very wonderful biography that just has the, um, you know, 
you know, like a, like reading his great dramatic yeah. work instead page of some turner. humdrum lives of the saints. Yeah, it's a page turner. It's about finding that balance between the right amount of information and keeping the story moving ahead. And I read the the chapter on Joan of Arc, and of course, she's an easy read, right? It's such right. an incredible story. Uh, but it it keeps you riveted. You you're like enthralled. You're right there. You want to see what happens next. And I think it's very well written. Do you have any personal favorites? Uh, maybe we should start with. Why don't you tell us? Uh, whose whose lives are depicted in this particular book so it um, it doesn't follow a particular historical order but it starts with saint agnes uh well-known early saint uh early uh, martyr and then it goes then you have uh maria de la luz camacho who is a cristero woman actually is one of, it's Viva. probably the most recent in history in in the book and actually I, and, um i'll get we'll come back to her because that's actually one of my personal favorites from the book um then saint cecilia saint Gemma galgani uh, Joan of Arc, St. Bernadette, St. Catherine of Siena, uh, St. Eulalia uh, mm. is a martyr that a lot of people haven't heard of. Uh, St. Margaret Mary Alacoque, obviously, or I think in the French it's Alacoque or something like that. I, I, I don't know. Um, St. Flora, right? He was martyred uh, by the Muslims in Cordova. Uh, St. Catherine Labore, St. Catherine of Alexandria. So like, you can see the interplay between modern, medieval, ancient, right? St. Lucy, St. Kateri Takwitha, uh, and then St. Therese of the Child Jesus uh, finishes the book. And you were saying so, your personal favorite? So, uh, Maria de la Luz Camacho. And so she was born in, uh, she, she died at 27. She was martyred by the communists in Mexico mm. during the events depicted in the movie For Greater Glory. And when they closed the church and um, she, so she had the the, the advantage of uh, being born just before Caius came to power. And so she was able to go to convent school. Her faith was very deeply instilled in her and her love for the church. And so it's, it's great sadness to her when the churches get closed down. Right. And uh, so she's doing whatever she can to support, you know, the church and all these events. And then finally, um, you know, when she was 27, the, communists were going to burn down the church and the cry circulated around and as soon as she heard that she made up her mind and she got up and dressed up and her uh her sister lupita asked her why why are you all dressed up and she says when we're going to defend christ the king ought we not look our best wow wow and they approach the church <laughs> and uh, you know the mob is all around ready to set fire to it uh the priest is in the church uh, you know, um Saying, you know, saying the saying the prayers at the foot of the altar, mm. she's, she's there to stop them, and uh, they shot her right at the mm. steps of the church. You know, I I was reading this, and I just want to emphasize the point about like this this collection of stories is so riveting. And in fact, I bought three copies to give away as Christmas gifts because I was like, I was reading them and I was like, this is so excellent. Yeah. And particularly this story also really struck me. And I actually copied uh, a, the, an excerpt right here and I want to read it out loud uh, to show like how amazing it is. Like, it's just so riveting. It goes, um, when the church bells rang announcing the elevation, the cries of the mob rose to a pitch that could mean only one thing. They were about to attack. A paralyzing fear gripped those kneeling in the church. Somewhere, a revolver cracked. The celebrant, fearing desecration, hastened to consume the sacred species. Outside, Maria de la Luz met the onrush. The young girl's courage facing them alone, daring them to shoot her, compelled their respect. A few began to recede. Others started to move toward her. Cursed be Christ the King, someone cried. Praise be Christ the King, Maria de la Luz shouted in response. 
and I'll leave it at that. But yes, it, it's, <laughs> it's just like watching a movie. You're reading it, and you're mm-hmm. like, I, I've read many Lives of Saints, and this one, I was like, am I reading fiction, or am I, or is this a biography? And that really struck me to the point that I went out of my way and bought three copies to give away as Christmas gifts. So Praise I, be to yeah, God. I definitely want to do that. Which, by the way, we should mention, you can find, uh, you can purchase this particular book at mediatrixpress.com. Uh, it's Heroines of Christ. Ryan Grant is our guest. He is with Mediatrix Press. Again, that's mediatrixpress.com. Uh, it is a riveting story for sure. And, and I think it's uh, a lot of times when it comes to Lives of the Saints, we will often get uh, priests uh, stories. We'll, we'll get a lot of priest stories uh, for obvious reasons. Or religious sisters or nuns will often come up. Uh, what about uh, what about people who are in the lay state? Pe- what about people who are married? Anybody on the list in particular? Um, well, Maria de la Luz, we just uh, mentioned, obviously, it was lay. Um, <clears throat> let's see, go through the A lot of the early martyrs uh, were also, you know, uh, laity. They, they were not uh, religious. And uh, Joan of Arc. Joan of Arc. I think these are great, too, to point out because I think there's a lot, a lot of folks that are uh, single or, or rather married, rather. Um, we're looking for good saintly examples in our life, and I think there's some good ones on this list. St. Joan of Arc always fascinates me, obviously. I, we uh, interviewed once Father Carlos Martins, and he told this fascinating story about how, uh, if you don't know, Father Carlos Martins is the steward of the, one of the largest collections of relics outside the Vatican in the world, and he's considered a, one of the foremost experts on relics. And he told me the story on the show that a bishop handed him a vial of dirt once, and said it was his uh, opinion that this dirt came from the very spot Joan was burned at the stake, but he had no way of proving it. And I wanted to give it to Father Carlos Martins to be the steward of, to manage it. And so he did. Well, one day he took it to an exorcism that he was uh, a part of, and they held it over the possessed person, and the devil howled. And uh, he thought that was some affirmation, at least, of the story, for whatever it's worth. But it's a powerful uh, thought to think that uh, a great saint like Joan of Arc um, is a life that we can meditate upon today. Somebody uh, who, uh, who we might even consider to be heroic and virtuous even unto death. Tell us a little bit about her story. Well, St. Joan of Arc um, principally... I'm not an expert in St. Joan of Arc by any stretch, but, um, you know, her story is that, you know, she appears before uh, the the prince who had been, because all of France is divided up now between different kingdoms. And the, the Valois dynasty that had, uh, or sorry, the Capetian dynasty, sorry, much century off, that had ruled <laughs> in France had been put out by uh, Henry V. Right? And they had to make an agreement to get the English to stop, you know, pillaging the rest of the country. So the, uh, so the king, who won the one who should be king, is now in exile. In, in southern France, and the English have, you know, a good part of the country, and the Burgundians have the, a good part of the, the rest of it. And so it, her story is, is largely about the restoration of order and bringing the, the proper monarch back to the throne and, you know, and, and how to, you know, get that done. There's all these miracles that God produces wherever she goes. She gets the soldiers to stop cursing. She uh, it, even taken, uh, she gets the French forces to take Orléans. And that was considered, uh, you know, impossible by the standards of the time. The English had made it impregnable. They had, um, you know, a lot of money. Funny, the French were so disorganized 
because everything had run you know, largely through the monarch and through the real court. And now there isn't a real court where they respect so, you know, all the nobles with their armies are kind of doing their own thing. So, you know, she unites all these disparate parties, but she does so with this holiness and devotion to Christ. And finally, she's brought to that, that passion where, she, you know, she does get betrayed. She does get taken by the English. And the thing is, too, the ecclesiastical courts, they have kind of their own way of we're going to wear you down, find out that you're actually, uh, you know, making all this stuff up. And they use uh, John Gerson in uh, his writings on, on spiritual revelations and different things to, 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 to bring down and they don't use him to use his writings to, to, you know, break her down basically. Mm. And there, she does go through this passion in this dark night where there's certain points where her trust has to overcome her natural human feeling doubt. Maybe it was all a mistake. And she overcomes all of that. And she has this heroic witness, um, you know, even then, uh, you know, when even the church has betrayed her now, uh, you know, working along with the English political interest. And yet she's still, is faithful, you know, to that last, you know, to finally be, you know, being burned at the stake. What a witness for today. So many people mm-hmm. do feel betrayed by those in right. the hierarchy, and yet fidelity is the order of the day. Yeah, formally excommunicated and then uh, made a saint. Uh, kind mm-hmm. of amazing. Uh, question about the the saints, though, is so there's a, I tell this story often because of uh, I, the rampant feminism that happens uh, around the world and in our day. We, these stories of the female saints are often co-opted, and Joan of Arc is probably number mm-hmm. one that's co-opted by the feminist to show, right. oh, you know, women power, women can do anything a man could do, that kind of idea. <laughs> and my great a story that I tell often, and my uh, friend of mine, Emily, went to the store, to a half-price bookstore, and found a collection of the female saints, Butler's Lives of the Saints, a collection of the just the female saints. And we, she started reading it, and she sends send me pictures and goes, what, did Butler write this? And it was, uh, turns out it was an edited uh, edition of it that had turned all the female saints into feminist icons. And right. it was, uh, it was, it was very scandalous. So could you talk about the importance of this book and learning about the female saints untainted by feminism and mm-hmm. w- authentic Catholic femininity? Let me start with a paragraph that I put on the back of the book. Uh, the contribution of women in the history of the church is, is usually overlooked. But in modern times, it's customary to look for all the wrong things. Who was powerful, who became the first woman to work in this place, who started a movement. The women who are the subject of this book, however, were greater than any of these mundane accomplishments. They were heroines of Christ. Cover needs to see it. And so, this is a Messy Family Minute with Mike and Alicia Hernan. We believe that parenting is a path to holiness. Sacrificing and suffering are built right into the vocation of being a spouse and a parent. This Lent, why not focus on ways in which you can really dive into laying down your life for your family? How can the sacrifices you make every day at home help you increase in holiness? Where can you give more to your spouse and your children? How can you sacrifice for them? To help couples celebrate Lent and Easter, we have developed a program called Cana 90. This is a free program offered on our website that guides you through discerning commitments for Lent that will help you be a better spouse and parent. St. John Chrysostom encourages us to consider commitments of prayer, fasting, and mercy. All Catholics who are called to the married vocation should consider what these commitments look like in their home. If you want to join us and hundreds of other couples on this Lenten journey, join us at MessyFamilyMinute.org. Howdy, this is Adrian Fonseca, producer of the Catholic Drive Time Show. Heard Monday through Friday, 6 a.m. Central and 7 a.m. Eastern, right here on the Guadalupe Radio Network. 
And I'm proud to tell you that Real Estate for Life is an underwriter of Catholic Drive Time. Real Estate for Life connects home buyers and sellers to real estate agents while supporting pro-life organizations, offering their clients a faith-based experience. They are online at realestateforlife.org. That's realestateforlife.org. God love you. icons and it was a it was it was very scandalous so could you talk about the importance of this book and learning about the female saints untainted by feminism and Mm -hmm. authentic catholic femininity let me start with a paragraph that i put on the back of the book Uh, the contribution of women in the history of the church is is usually overlooked but in modern times it's customary to look for all the wrong things who is powerful who became the first woman to work in this place who started a movement The women who are the subject of this book, however, were greater than any of these mundane accomplishments. They were heroines of Christ, right? So just the cover, if anyone needs to see it. Um, And so being a a heroine of Christ, maybe there is some social movement that needs redressing Elizabeth Gaskell style, right? You know, of, of this or that sort of thing. But the real heroines of Christ, ultimately, it's not a question of what you accomplished into these secular achievements, um, you know, women voting or whatever, uh, women's suffrage. It's it's about your suffering for Christ, your devotion to him, and just as it is for men, but also women have a particular genius that God gave them, as well as a particular a job in, in the world in accordance with their nature, right? And to, I'm not going to say be subservient, but to be humble, and they have a more natural uh you know, movement toward humility, women actually, but it's easier for women to acquire the virtue of humility than men, uh, because largely because of their nature. And in all of these saints, even Joan of Arc, um, you know, who's, who's leading troops in a battle, um, she doesn't have a great, you know, armor, suit of armor made for her that, you know, people did have that done in those times. You do see female monarchs like Isabella even that had a big suit of armor made up for them, even though it's largely ceremonial. So whether that actually worked or not, it's kind of, because it was to put a screw that in reality, Joan of Arc would have just worn like a simple male shirt um, over a tunic and in battle. So it's a, uh, but the, the humility and their love for Jesus Christ, you see St. Catherine of Siena in the book, uh, the, the bride of the crucified is, is that chapter. Um, you know, amazing. And she, she's looked to by everyone and mm-hmm. she puts herself where at the service of Jesus Christ to be led as he is leading, not as this or that political faction wants her to go. Um, all the saints here, you know, the early martyrs to, you know, wherever they always pursue their vocation as you have St. Agnes in, in the uh, beginning that, um, you know, is consecrated as a virgin. And then she finds that, you know, she's supposed to be married. You know, and uh, and so she doesn't, you know, throw a today like the, the, a tantrum the way the feminists would and, and different mm. things. What she does is she she goes along it and informs her husband of this. And because he was a man of virtue, he says, well, all right, that's what we're going to do then. <laughs> and we're going to be completely celibate because recognize that she had already vowed her chastity to Christ. Right. And which is, you know, and that's an amazing sacrifice for him too to look at that and say, I see what God's doing here. And I'm going to he's telling me to ante up and I'm going to. Yeah, put uh, my cards on the table and be a man and be be a holy man, right? And so, in all these things, uh, all these various women, they're um, you know the devotion is to Christ first, mm. and it's not to overturn order; it's to restore order. And there's a 
what was that line from Chesterton? It comes to mind. He says that um, I'm going to butcher it, but he says that feminism is rather like, um, you know, 10,000 women who say we will not be dictated to and promptly take jobs as stenographers. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, love that line, yeah. uh, but it's, you know, as a woman, your, your calling, your vocation is to serve Christ first, you know, above just as a man, but in a very particular way, mm. um, you know, that, that really represents their genius, frankly. And, and, and again, and their acquiring of the virtues is a lot easier in those respects than it is for men. So, and in just like balances on the other side, there's certain things that come easier to men than, than they do for women. But in all these, all these saints, what do they do? They, they looked in their situations very humbly change everything around them for Christ, just like the mother of the home changes everything around her. You let you get dad watching the kids for a day. You know, we had this yesterday actually. And then there's like chaos disorder. And as he tries to put all these things together, the mom comes home and then she sets everything in order. Hmm. It just, it just does. And, and, and you're looking at this, it's like, how do you get anything done? Good grief. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a minute ago, you were talking about uh, Agnes and her husband. Uh, uh, Teresa of the Child Jesus is uh, chapter 15 in this particular book. Mm-hmm. Her parents, Louis and Zelie Martin, started their marriage off that way. Uh, right. uh, uh, Zelie wanted, felt she was called to celibacy, and so did Louis, and then they were married. And I think for like, what? Uh, nine months or something. That's how they mm-hmm. lived until the priest, after hearing their confession, said, no, you're supposed to have kids. And then they had nine kids, right. praise be to God. Mm-hmm. Uh, so incredible heroic witnesses. Uh, is there anybody on this list, or was there anybody that you would have included into this list if you had written this originally? There's actually, um, that, that actually is something, there's quite a few that I would have uh, added to the list. But the book as it is, is good because it's not too long. Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, it's about 200 pages. It's just about the right, the right level, the right, uh, you know, that it should be. So what I was actually thinking when I was talking to my wife is that, you know, hey, why don't we do a part two? Yeah. Along the same plan. Good idea. And, you know, I don't know if uh, you have to recruit some people that have, you know, about the level of writing talent that the original authors of this did. But so here's the actually I got I came up with my own list of 15 people, if you're interested. I but, am. Uh, Let's hear it. Have uh, St. Agatha. Okay. St. Apollonia. So this mm-hmm. is an early martyrs. We'd mix these in like in the original book. Uh, St. Philomena, St. Helena, Constantine's mother. Wow. St. Paula of Rome, who was a desert mother. Um, and then we would take Blanche of Castile, the mother of uh, Louis the Thirteenth, uh, King St. Louis the Ninth. Mm-hmm. Good grief. King St. <laughs> Louis the Ninth. St. Clair. St. Isabella, or not St. should be St. St. Isabella of uh, Castile. Uh, the, the great Isabella of Spain, St. Catherine of Genoa, uh, the Venerable Anne of Jesus. Actually, I have a book on her. Um, and so then Blessed Anna Marie Taigi in modern times, Blessed Elizabeth Canori Mora. Yes. Both, of, both those two were married. Uh, Blessed Pauline Marie Jericho, uh, the Empress uh, Zita, the wife of uh, Blessed Carl, and Sister Genevieve, St. Therese's sister. Wow. And there was Celine. So that's the list that I would put in for a part two. I would have added uh, St. Rita, you know, blessed Elizabeth Conor yeah, Mora and Conor uh, Mora and, and St. Rita. They have very parallel stories. They do. Both young were very young women who wanted mm-hmm. to be in the religious life and, and actually lived that way as young girls, only to be forced into marriage by their parents mm-hmm. and had uh, had to suffer their husband's uh, infidelities and, and right. abuses and did so heroically. And Kenora mm-hmm. Moore, of course, her her visions are like scary. You know, they're they so are. they're so incredible. But uh, or great like uh, St. Mary of the Desert. I know mm-hmm. I heard her mm-hmm. story recently and I was like, whoa, like that is 
hard hitting. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's striking. But yeah, part three. Right, right. It could be making a whole I mean, series. Okay. Yeah. Volume yeah. 20. Drift off, drift off this forever. But no, really, though, <laughs> because there are, <laughs> there are so many holy women in the church you know, whose stories really need to be told. And, and they're all you know, different. I mean, Blessed Anna Marie Taigi uh, is like the, the opposite of Elizabeth Canori Mora. Although she's Italian, she lives roughly the shortly after that period or just somewhat uh, contemporaneous. She was married. Her husband was a rough and gruff guy, but he was a good man fundamentally. Mm. And so she had visions and, you know, this ball of light even, you know, would appear when she had visions and God would show her things. And so cardinals and popes want, and, and if popes wanted to come uh, wait on her, actually, uh, wow. um, uh, not, not Pius VII, Leo Twelfth and uh, Pius IX both came to see her. And then she would dismiss them <laughs> and say, well, my husband's coming home and I need to have dinner prepared. So she kicked the Pope and Cardinals out so she could yeah. make dinner for her husband. Good call. Good call. <laughs> she always provided for him. Yeah. So everything was ready for him. And he never had anything to complain about. He's one of these rough, hard, you know, t- difficult people mm. that everything set in order completely melts that, that harsh exterior. Wow. Uh, one thing I was thinking about while you're saying this is the fact that, um, you know, we have all these uh, these ladies who are these like, like, as you're saying, heroines for Christ. And the the common thread between these people is they live in a specific context. And I was talking to the, the TFP. I don't know how familiar you are with them, but the TFP, they are often hammering the point of what they call white heresy. And it's things that they, they call it white heresy because they said it's not exactly heresy, but the way that the saints are depicted oftenly will show a white heresy because it is not telling you something wrong that's going to be damaging to your faith, but it shows the saints in this very serpy way that they're they're not living in a real context. But when you mm-hmm. look at the lives of the saints, and I'm reading the stories, and I'm like, like these people were in the middle of war. They're being persecuted. There is the Emperor Diocletian slaughtering people left and right, and they're responding with, to the grace they're given with the uh, in the context of the situation. Uh, could you speak a little bit about the uh, the context in which these saints live? They didn't just we're just in the middle of nowhere living holy lives and uh, on their own. They actually lived right. in a society. They did. And that's one of the things in um, my talk on St. John Fisher, uh, which I think you can find on YouTube. Um, I, I make the point in the beginning that we're here to crash the party of secular history. And the way secular history is written is try to wall off European history or Roman history so that the saints can't quite get in. They're like these people out there, you find them in those hagiographical books that are all, you know, second nocturne stuff you don't have to pay attention to right um you know that french phrase you know he lies like the second nocturne right because some medieval uh accounts in the breviary would be just so ridiculous um but nevertheless they are people who lived in history and they are people that you can't just you know wall off and get rid of uh like in the english reformation example more is someone that can be you know is, a, is celebrated as a regrettable road bump on the way to so-called reformation because he could be secularized to a certain extent. Uh, Fisher, on the other hand, what do you do with a reforming bishop who's more reformed than any Anglican bishop for 300 years <laughs> and uh, was rooting out abuses left and right and wrote the book against Luther, criticized the Pope of his day, um, and died a holy martyr for the church? What do you do with him? Well, you just got to liquidate him from history, get rid of him, right? And so then we're kind of stuck with this, where this is history on this side, and this is the geography, and the two somehow can't come together. And that's why really what we're talking about in the States. Gravitate toward in terms of choosing. This is Dale Alquist uh, with a Chesterton Minute. 
Have you ever heard people say that Christianity is barbaric, that it arose in ignorance? Well, G.K. Chesterton says that as a matter of historical fact, it didn't. It arose in the most civilized period the world has ever seen. It arose precisely at the intersection of three great civilizations, Athens, Rome, and Jerusalem. It combined the philosophy of the first two with the faith of the third. So what's the real reason the opponents of Christianity do not believe it? It's not because it's barbaric and ignorant. It's not even because it's civilized and sophisticated. It's because, as Chesterton says, opponents of Christianity would believe anything except Christianity. Want more than a minute? Visit us at Chesterton.org. GloryAndShine.com, a generous underwriter of Catholic Drive Time. GloryAndShine.com is a Catholic family-owned company making a variety of personal care products ranging from lotions, soap bars, gift boxes, body mist, beard care, and more. At GloryAndShine.com, they state their mission is to, quote, craft every product with deep intention while holding a vision of sharing the gospel. They are good for the body, mind, and soul, unquote. God love you, GloryAndShine.com. Thank you again. Because he could be secularized to a certain extent. Uh, Fisher, on the other hand, what do you do with a reforming bishop who's more reformed than any Anglican bishop for 300 years <laughs> and uh, was rooting out abuses left and right and wrote the book against Luther, criticized the Pope of his day, um, and died a holy martyr for the church? What do you do with him? Well, you just got to liquidate him from history, get rid of him, right? And so then we're kind of stuck with this, where this is history on this side, and this is hagiography, and the two somehow can't come together. And that's why really well-written biography of the saints, uh, which is one of the things I gravitate toward in terms of choosing to reprint, Mm. uh, crash that secular party. And and especially when written by Catholic authors who are endowed with the, the virtue of faith. We don't get plaster saints for whom a, a smile would crack their face yeah. and these sorts of things. And we don't get this kind of, you know, illuminated portrait out of the context. You get the actual context they lived in. So, I mean, all the early martyrs, Agnes, Cecilia, Lucy, etc., you know, they're living in Roman times where the faith is technically illegal, sometimes tolerated. And but Romans don't if you're a good patriotic Roman, the thing you want to do is enforce the public cult. So that public cult is, of course, to the traditional pagan gods. And if and if you're in one cult or a mystery cult or whatever, in principle, there's no problem with pinching incense to, to Jupiter, pinching incense to Venus or Mars, whatever, whoever the god or goddess is of this or that city. And it's considered a lack of patriotism. It's frankly treason mm. to not do so. That's the context in which these early saints lived. Um, you can see a lot of this life of St. Cyprian as well. Um and so if, if you're a Christian, especially if you're a woman, has very little defense in Roman society. Women uh, very rarely have, um, you know, actually another candidate for, for a sequel would be St. Perpetua. Oh, yeah. Um, sure. And uh, in, her, in her maid, St. Felicity, but St. Perpetua, she was a Roman. She was educated. And a lot of times when you were the oldest daughter, when the firstborn was a daughter, uh, a, a traditional Roman household would expose them. Actually, that is, they would throw them out so they'd be killed by the elements because you want to get that boy first. And once you get the son, now now it's good. And, and that was something in the pagan world was customarily done. 
actually, all throughout the the world. And so the Romans, this was a, a big problem actually until the, the you know the the influence of Christianity kind of put a a bad turn on this. But Perpetua's father decided mm. he looked at her and he couldn't do that. And so she was raised and educated in his home. That was a rarity most of the time. So there were more men than women in the Roman Empire, right? So this is already a tough world to be born into. Yeah. It's not much better as you go east I mean, because the cultures are largely the same with a lot of these expectations. So when you have, you know, the, these heroic women like Agnes, Cecilia, uh, Lucy, that, um, you know, stand up for their faith, they're losing everything. I mean, mm. just embracing the faith in those times, they know they're going to lose everything. But, um, but that's the point. <laughs> you know, yeah. he who keeps his life loses it in the next. He who loses his life in this one gains it in the next. Something you said a minute ago really sparked a thought in my mind. I love history. I like reading, especially church history. Uh, Warren Carroll's my favorite church historian. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, recently, I just went through a novel uh, on the 16th century and the, 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 the wars we had with the Ottoman Empire, specifically naval battles. And, you know, and I love Lepanto. I, I, I eat it up. I eat that story up so many times. But so many times they're like pious retellings of the story. And they gloss over a lot of the, uh, the grittier details mm-hmm. to make things sort of uh, embellish the highlights, so to speak. And as you were saying a minute ago, you, you sort of brought up uh, a question that we might need to clarify. Hagiography versus mythology versus biography. Maybe you can explain a little bit the differences between the, uh, these things and uh, sort of what this book is particularly shooting for. Okay. So hagiography from the Greek agios, which is, uh, you know, holy and therefore, you know, the study of saints, that is um, it's kind of like you see with like the golden legend in the Middle Ages of uh, Julius Veron uh, that uh, tells this, um, you know, story, it takes stories that are loosely based on facts, sometimes even made up, depending, uh, although that the golden legend is a little more accurate, tells stories about the apostles, fills in gaps in actual knowledge. And, you know, they're, they're not historically reliable. The goal in a work like that typically was to to depict the saintliness and the virtues of the saint rather than, you know, have it have be historically accurate. And as time evolved, the demands of actual history, uh, like Cardinal Baronius, for example, doesn't get enough credit. He's really the founder of modern historiography as we know it now. Mm. History is a science. I mean, it's a large, largely a lot of chronicles. You read like the res geste of uh, um, one of the deacons around Charlemagne. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. And he writes kind of like a chronicle. And then this happened and this happened. And, you know, so people are trying to, you know, be reliable. But Baronius draws in kind of like it makes it a science it, it, to use that enlightenment term um, in, in trying to write the history of the church in the Annales. And he goes through manuscripts that he had to be taught how to read in order to, you know, gain wow. information and, and find the veracity of, you know, all these things at a time when the Vatican library was not organized. He started that process. The, um, you know, he's going around to, you know, nobility that might have dug up manuscripts somewhere and they're trying to sell them to the highest bidder and he's getting money to get a hold of these things. Right. So whole principle, primary sources, and what's our source for this? And then the, uh, and so that demand puts a demand on hagiography that it has to be at least, you know, based on actual history. It can't have, you know, things that are fallacious mm. historically. And so, but hagiography still has that basic aim as its goal is not to tell history. The goal is specifically to show the virtues and holiness. And that's not a bad thing, by the way. Right. There's nothing wrong with a good book or a good pamphlet on this or that saint that's going to tell us about. So I sell two books on John Fisher. I'll illustrate this. One is by Father Vincent McNabb, mm-hmm. and it's a wonderful book. It, it's not very long, and it's 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 wonderfully written, much like uh, this book, Heroines of Christ. And it you know it, it depicts his virtues, but it also is historically accurate. It's based on a, one of the first biographies of John Fisher that came out. 
I saw another one um, by e. E. Uh, Reynolds, and that book is actually you know, a fantastic work of historical biography. And because it's it's tracing everything from the sources of the period and basing it on that. And that's what makes a good secondary source, even in secular history. And yet it's written by a Catholic who is a mind to Catholic faith. And so he's going to also you know relate things in such a way where it's pious, but it's also historically accurate. So much like you see in secular biography, where the goal is what at least it's supposed to be. And uh, you're going to base it off of your primary sources and what you can demonstrate in, in terms of documentation and you establish your timelines and what have you. So that's that's really the goal. And then you have mythology of things where, uh, you know, legends come up in popular rendering. Somebody remembers a legend and puts it into a book. But, you know, there's no you know critical apparatus because it's like the ninth century or something like that. <laughs> right. And so there's not a lot of, you know, uh, people are going to be very, you know, local that are going to be that you know, was very well minded that was also very true for padre pio one of my patron saints right uh, during his life there were many books written about the miracles uh, associated with his life while he was yet alive i have a couple of copies on my bookshelf at home and they're they're so general and generic and and obscure mm-hmm. you know so and so showed up and thus happened you know it was just right. it's like there's no detail there's no meat on the bone they just uh, tell us these pious antidotes there so that might be another example of this type of material you you're talking about it is very much the same you hear a story now there's stuff that has been proven like there was this lady that um was born with no pupils in her eyes but she could see and it had been scientifically demonstrated that she can see mm. but th- there's no explanation for how she can see that's a documented miracle versus uh you know so and so came and this happened and, and but there's like you know i hear like padre pio is actually one of those ones someone will tell me and one time padre pio said like, right well oh great where can i find that yes you exactly know, yeah. like i don't believe it but why i'm not gonna be jerk about it so right. i mean i am a jerk but i try not to act like it all the time so where can i find that please tell me and they're like oh i don't know i heard it i saw it on reddit is basically the, the equivalent yeah. you know i saw it in this or that forum well can you find a book that i could find that in and it's like and, and i've gotten into various books from Padre Pio it's like I can't find where any of this stuff happened that I'm usually hearing about he said yeah uh three days of darkness is another one that's lacuna Padre Pio said there'd be three days of darkness it'd be this and they're like all right that's great where can I find it yeah and I can't find it anywhere especially after he was forbidden to even write to his you know mm-hmm. spiritual directees uh, right for very early on in his in his life in his Percy mm-hmm. life Adrian you're yeah, well, speaking of crushing people's dreams um <laughs> the the blue P- <laughs> the, could you call, make a comment about the uh, the blue Pieta book I had uh, saw a, a discourse you had on Twitter about the oh, blue Pieta right. book and I know I was very scandalized with the blue Pieta book a few years ago because we grew up with that my family we used mm-hmm. blue Pieta book for everything and we were found the 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 section on like never criticize a priest and then the saint gertrude prayer was the thing that came up on twitter that you made a comment on could you talk about that right. briefly or not the saint gertrude well yeah the saint gertrude prayer in terms of the promises associated with it um that it's going to release some thousand souls of purgatory every time you say it or whatnot uh that's never been approved by the church that doesn't show up in any official material by the church although the wow. church has not officially said anything um about that that i know of it's this there's also prayers at the beginning of that book on saint bridget and the vatican actually put out a monitum in 1954 saying that uh, this you know these prayers with so the associated promises that come with them may not be published so it's basically giving a, a condemnation of the promises um it didn't say anything about the prayer per se i was mistaken about that when i first made the comments so i corrected myself but it was the promises associated with the saint bridget prayers in the pieta book where it said that y- you can't publish these together because those promises are not anything the church has ever approved right wow. and so there's seers in the book 
um, I don't have their names handy. One's French and the other I can't remember. Um, but also named in the monotum that uh, that have not been approved by the church, but they're in. They were in other books, and so the Pieta books kind of like a collection of these that were circulating in Europe. And so there's there's good prayers in that book. There are solid prayers in that book. I had that book when I was first a Catholic when I was in uh, Steubenville. And I was a young Catholic kind of getting, not knowing much about the faith at all. And that Pieta book was actually, I had that and I prayed so many things out of it. And it's like, so there's good things in that book without doubt. Uh, I would say probably 80, 90% of it. But then there's like these little things from these seers. There is a portrait that's uh, attributed to, to being like from some seer that she received a vision of the, the Our Lady. And that's what she looked like. That also has not been approved by the church. Um, there's a lot of different things in there. In the same, and then those promises on the St. Bridget prayer, not approved by the church. And so that's why... And people want to again say that today, too, because there's so much corruption and malfeasance in the church. But the fact is, they still have the authority. They still have the authority yeah. to judge these things. And That's even right. if um, you don't believe in the modern authority before Vatican II, when you do believe in it, they had that then, too. So either way, um, you know, there's a reason why Christ constituted that authority to help us to, you know, to, to look in these things. And, and to, you know, if God wants it done, he's going to grant that uh, through the church. They're going to grant that, okay, you know, this has nothing in error against faith and morals. You can use it. Yeah. Uh, but like promises like that, I mean, that are, you know, like every time everyone says this prayer, a thousand souls be released in purgatory. I mean, if you do the math on that, I think it would be hard to come up with um, that, that there's even anyone in purgatory, you know, well, if that was so. Someone famous once said there's a reasonable hope. Anyway, that's a different yes. topic for a different day. Uh, right. we're, we are just about out of place. time. We are just about out of time here. But uh, we've been talking with Ryan Grant from Mediatrix Press. The book is called Heroines of Christ. You can find it at mediatrixpress.com. Great book. Uh, very inspirational. Thank you, Ryan Grant, for your time today. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, praise be to God. God love you. God bless you. And have a great day. Thank you for joining us on Your Catholic Drive Time where it is our pleasure to keep you informed and inspired. Join us Monday through Friday at the same time, right here on your favorite Catholic radio station. Don't forget to connect with us. Just go to facebook.com forward slash Catholic Drive Time. Again, that's facebook.com forward slash Catholic Drive Time. Be sure to share more than just us today. Share Jesus with everyone you meet. Bye now, and God love you. The Bible says to call no man father, so why do we call our priests father? In Matthew 23, verse 9, it says, And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Notice that this verse makes no distinction between spiritual fathers, which is what priests are, and biological fathers. This passage says that no man is to be called father. Therefore, you cannot distinguish between calling a priest father and calling the man who is married to your mother father. But is that actually what this passage is saying? Or is Jesus warning us against trying to usurp the fatherhood of God, which is what the Pharisees and scribes were doing? They wanted all attention focused on them. They were leaving God, the Father, out of the equation. And even if you just interpret this passage from Matthew 23 as an absolute ban against calling anyone your spiritual father, then there are some problems for you in the rest of Scripture. For example, Jesus in the story of Lazarus and the rich man in Luke 16 has the rich man referring to Abraham as father several times. Paul in Romans 4 refers to Abraham as the father of the uncircumcised, the Gentiles. Spiritual fatherhood, not biological fatherhood. In Acts 7 and then in Acts 22, first Stephen and then Paul referred to the Jewish priests and elders as brothers and fathers. Spiritual fatherhood. 
So if you interpret Matthew 23 as saying we cannot call anyone our spiritual father, then you have to believe that Jesus, Paul, and Stephen all got it wrong. It is okay to call priests our spiritual fathers today. We are simply imitating the example given us by Jesus, Paul, and Stephen, all of whom who used the term in a spiritual sense. As long as we remember that our true father is God the Father and that all aspects of our fatherhood, biological and spiritual, are derived from him. A beacon of truth in a troubled world. This is the Guadalupe Radio Network, radio for your soul. Howdy, this is Adrian Fonseca, producer of the Catholic Drive Time Show. Heard Monday through Friday, 6 a.m. Central and 7 a.m. Eastern, right here on the Guadalupe Radio Network. And I'm proud to tell you that Real Estate for Life is an underwriter of Catholic Drive Time. Real Estate for Life connects home buyers and sellers to real estate agents while supporting pro-life organizations, offering their clients a faith-based experience. They are online at realestateforlife.org. That's realestateforlife.org. God love you. Welcome to your Catholic Drive Time, keeping you informed and inspired. We love God. We ought to be able to talk about Him. Getting you started on your day. With the latest in breaking news and information from the Vatican to the White House and everything in between. It's serious. It's fun. It's your Catholic Drive Time. Now here's your host, Joe McClain. Praise be to Jesus Christ. This is your producer, Adrian Fonseca, and today is Friday, the 26th of November. The day after Thanksgiving. Praise be to God. And what did you do for Thanksgiving this year? Did you go see your family? And what are you doing right now? Do you get the day off? No school. No school today. Now with me and Joe, Joe and I and Rudy, we have the day off. Thanks be to God. We are probably in bed right now. So this is a pre-recorded show. We did this show previously and we will be presenting it today for you. Brand new content never before heard. And today we'll be doing things a little bit different, so there's not going to be a game show because it is not live, so don't call in today. But be sure to call in on Monday because we will be back in studio on Monday. And guess what? Because next Monday is, in fact, our uh, quarterly Christmas share our December share we are having our, or I guess November share it's not December yet. We are having a, the, we're only going to have one day for the game show. And what does that mean? That means Whoever calls in on Monday is automatically the winner, no matter what. Even if you get all the questions wrong, you're automatically a winner. So be sure to tune in on Monday to find out who is going to or what the question is to call into the game show because you're going to win a prize no matter what happens. And uh, so be sure to tune in on Monday. But today, no game show, so don't call in. We're going to do the gospel today, say to the day. A brief gospel reflection, and then we're going to have something special on the other side of the break. And we, during the last hour, if you missed it, we had an interview with Ryan Grant, and yesterday we had another pre-recorded show with Father George Elliott. And if you missed those interviews, you got to check them out. You got to go to grnonline.com forward slash cdt. That's grnonline.com forward slash cdt to see those interviews on our YouTube channel. And so we, with all the links there will be found on our website. Okay, without further ado, let's let's pray. Let's offer up Thanksgiving to God. I hope you're doing something special for Thanksgiving, the day after Thanksgiving. You're not just, you know, sending in debauchery, heading out to do uh, Black Friday sales. I hope you're spending the time and reflecting on God and thinking about how thankful you are to be alive today, thankful for all the graces that God has given you. 
And let us also be thinking about some of our, um, like on today, we have an abundance of food. I know many people are, you know, prices are up and it's difficult for a lot of people, but, you know, praise be to God. We had to, we were able to be with family today. We were able to have uh, some food on our table and God has blessed us so abundantly. So let's give thanks to God for that. And without further ado, let's uh, say our memorare and get into the show. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by his confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. And now the saint of the day. The saint of the day is Saint Leonard of Port Maurice. He was born in Paul Jerome Casanova on December 20th, 1676, in Port Mauricio. Then was part of the Republic of Genoa. His father, a ship captain, was a man of faith. Five of his six children went on to become religious. When the boy who would then become Saint Leonard was 13, he went to study at the Roman College in Rome, the city where his uncle lived. One day, he happened to visit the church connected with the Franciscan convent of St. Bonaventure on the Palatine Hill. Just as the friars were chanting Compline at the words, Converta nos Deus salutaris noster, or Convert us, O God, our salvation. The young man was converted from his worldly aspirations to supernatural ones. Listening to God's call, he entered the reform branch of the Franciscan order. He took his habit in 1697, taking the name of Leonard. After making his novitiate at Ponticelli, he completed his studies at the principal house of the reform branch at St. Bonaventure al Paletino in Rome. After his ordination in 1703, he remained there as a professor. Leonard longed to go to China as a missionary, for it was his great desire to convert souls for Christ and to shed his blood for the faith. However, he was soon seized with a severe gastric hemorrhage, becoming so ill that he was sent to his native Porto Marciso in the hope that he might recover his health. St. Leonard did recover, and he attributed his restoration to the health of Our Lady's intercession. During his illness, he had promised that should his prayers for recovery be granted, he would devote his life to the conversion of sinners. And he kept his promise, spending 44 years preaching popular missions, converting every section of Italy and the island of Crozisca. Leonard at one time felt certain distaste for mission work after his superiors laid his duty upon him. He understood it to be the will of God and he consecrated himself wholeheartedly to it, becoming one of the greatest missionaries and apostles in the history of the church. He chose as the patron of his missions the great Dominican saint, preacher and miracle worker, Saint Vincent Ferrer, whose picture he would also use to heal the sick, or to bless the sick rather. Around the age of 30, he began to preach in Port Maurice and its vicinity, Leonard's preaching was marked by many extraordinary conversions. The power of his words, coupled with his holiness and extraordinarily austere and penitential life, made a deep impression even on the most hardened sinners. St. Leonard used to preach to many thousands in open squares in every town where he went. The churches were too small to contain the multitudes. Entire towns flocked to hear the sermons, so that it was not uncommon to see crowds of 15 to 20,000 gathering to listen to the saint. Miraculous conversions followed his preaching everywhere. 
St. Leonard preached several times a day, heard confessions for countless hours, gave advice, established peace between warring factions, all without neglecting his own prayers, including three hours of mental prayer each day, celebrating daily mass with great devotion and precision, and saying the divine office on his knees. The saint stressed the importance of the practice of maintaining oneself in the presence of God at all times. He recommended people to exclaim many times throughout the day, and especially at the beginning of every action, My Jesus, mercy. That way, when they can pray always, even amidst their daily occupations, and do everything with pure intention, looking to God alone in every action they perform. In 1716, he founded the solitude of St. Mary of Incontro near Florence, a house of retreat where the friars could retire from time to time to renew their spiritual strength, applying themselves seriously in silence and great austerity to the work of their own sanctification. The religious would withdraw there in turn to then return to their convents and missionary labors, filled with re renewed zeal to work for the glory of God and the salvation of souls. Leonard was a superior in Florence and Prato for over 20 years before returning to Rome in 1736 to become guardian of the convent of St. Bonaventure. He was an austere, reserved, and silent man, but also kind and patient in his treatment of others. The devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary, and in particular the Immaculate Conception, perpetual adoration of the Blessed Sacrament, and devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus were some of the topics he promoted. It was St. Leonard who composed, and especially as a reparation for the sin of blasphemy, the divine praises we say at the end of every benediction. You know, the blessed be God, blessed be his holy name. It is to St. Leonard we owe the devotion to the station of the cross. Wherever he went, he promoted the Via Crucis. Not a mission went by without him leading the people in this pious meditation of the passion of our Lord. St. Leonard erected 571 station of the cross throughout Italy, including the famous stations of the Colosseum in Rome. While St. Leonard's great life work were the, were the missions, he also preached many retreats to both religious and lay people. The theme, the theme was most often the passion of Christ. He wrote that one of the cures for the ills of men and of the society was a daily meditation on the passion. It would bring people back in touch with reality, rearrange their priorities, and put everything into proper perspective, causing them to grow in love for Christ. St. Leonard's love for Our Lady led him to ardently desire to see and do the utmost to procure the dogmatic definition of the Immaculate Conception. He called the most important cause in the world because every other good depended on it. Peace, happiness, triumph over heresies, triumph of the church. He urged prelates to petition Rome for this. The strains of his missionary labors and severe mortification completely exhausted St. Leonard's body. After his missions in Lucca and Bologna, he was stricken by fever, but nevertheless journeyed back to Rome in obedience to the wishes of Pope Benedict XIV, who made him promise he would not die in any other city but Rome. Even in his last days, half dead, the saint insisted on saying Mass, though with great difficulty, for a single Mass is worth more than all the wealth of the world, said St. Leonard. On November 26, 1751, St. Leonard arrived in his beloved monastery of St. Bonaventure in Rome, dying the same evening at 11 p.m. at the age of 75. Great crowds came to see and venerate his body. God glorified him in life, but still more after his death by numerous miracles. His still partially incorrupt body was kept at the high altar of the church of San Bonaventura at Palentino until 1997, when it was transferred to his native town. There it can be seen in a glass urn at the Cathedral of Impera Porta Maceso. Only a relic of one of his ribs remains of the Church of St. Bonaventure in Rome. 
At the adjacent convent, one can visit the saint's former cell, transformed into a little museum. St. Leonard was beatified by Pope Pius VI in 1796. Blessed Pius IX, a Franciscan tertiary, canonized him in 1867. He was named the patron saint of parish missions by Pope Pius XI. St. Leonard left as many writings, the most well-known of which is his beautiful book about the most precious treasure we have on earth, the Mass. His sermons, letters, ascetic, and, dev- and devotional writings have been preserved, but only a small part has been translated into English. His most famous sermon, The Little Number of Those Who Are Saved, was the one he relied on for the conversion of great sinners. And you can actually find me reading that on a number of places on the Catholic Drive Time YouTube channel. Santa Leonarde Ora Pronobis. The Gospel of the Day comes from Luke chapter 21, verses 29 through 33. Jesus told his disciples a parable. Consider the fig tree and all the other trees. When the buds burst open, you see for yourself and know that summer is now over. In the same way, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Amen, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to Jesus Christ. And yes, our gospel today, that's praise be to God for the, for the gospel for today. And this is very apropos thinking about, you know, the end of the world because the, the liturgical calendar is over now. We're going into Advent, which is the new year. And so, you know, we celebrate New Year's on January 1st, but the liturgical new year begins in Advent because Advent is what? It is a looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. It's coming to the birth of Christ. And so we are now beginning the new liturgical year this coming Sunday. And what is happening? Our Lord, uh, or the church in her wisdom, had decided to have this gospel here, thinking about the end of the world, thinking about the coming of the end of the world. Now, what is meant here when it's referred to as the, when we talk about the fig tree, right? So the fig tree is mentioned over and over again. And in other contexts, our Lord curses the fig tree and kills it. But here he says, he tells him a parable said, consider the fig tree and all the other trees. When their buds burst open, you see for yourself and know that summer is now near. Why do you know that summer is now near? Well, Cornelius Lapide tells us that the, that the fig tree, it only comes out, the trees, like the actual leaves come out during the summer and during the winter the tree is dead and it come out kind of resurrects during the summer and the same time when you see these things happening know that the kingdom of god is near okay so the kingdom of god is near what is happening when our when cornet Lapide looks at this he now he takes it and analyzes and analyzes it i can't speak today he ana- analyzes it and looks at when will the world end now there's a number of theories that he that cornet Lapide proposes He's, here's a couple of his theories. He says, one theory, he says, many suppose the world will come to an end after it has existed for 6,000 years, as it was created in six days. So we're thinking of the Gen- book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, the world was created in six days. And therefore, the belief was, according to many, was that the earth would end after 6,000 years. He says, he talks a little about this more in the apocalypse, but we don't have access to that just yet. Another theory, he says, is that something that there would be just as many years after Christ to the end of the world as they were from creation to Christ. Now, what would that mean for us? Um, well, there's different theories about how old the world was from creation to the beginning of to the Christ. And that just depends on many people's idea. Now, that could mean it could, we would go to 3000 AD 
It could mean other other things, but the common opinion is that before the creation, there was about 3,000 years was a, is kind of a ballpark answer, uh, but we don't actually know for sure. He said a third opinion is that, they, that there would be as many jubilees after Christ as there were in his earthly life, and that would put us at AD 1700, and we're already past that date, so we know that's not true. He says another one was that they would end at AD 800, which is, you know, past uh, whenever Cornelius Lapide was alive, so he was saying that's obviously not true either. A fifth calculation was put forth by the contemporary who said that the that it was fixed on 1666, you know, giving that 666 ideology there. And Chris Lopetis says, nope, that's not true either. These are not good. Not very good answers. Now, he goes on to say, but the father only knows the time when the world will end. Only the father knows. No one else. Now, what does that mean exactly when he says that no one else knows? Well, well, real quickly from St. Augustine and many other uh, fathers of the church, they say that he does not know qua man. He doesn't know as man. He does not know the judgment. But as God, he does know. That is to say, Christ as man knoweth it not by virtue of his humanity, but by his divinity. And that makes it true that because he is God, but he is man at the same time. Now, praise be to God, we're going to go to a break. And when we come back, we're going to have our interview with Ryan Grant on heroines for Christ. What do these, these saintly women have contributed to Holy Mother Church? All this in just a moment. Howdy, this is Adrian Fonseca, producer of the Catholic Drive Time Show. Heard Monday through Friday, 6 a.m. Central and 7 a.m. Eastern, right here on the Guadalupe Radio Network. And I'm proud to tell you that Real Estate for Life is an underwriter of Catholic Drive Time. Real Estate for Life connects home buyers and sellers to real estate agents while supporting pro-life organizations, offering their clients a faith-based experience. They are online at realestateforlife.org. That's realestateforlife.org. God love you. Gloryandshine.com, a generous underwriter of Catholic Drive Time. Gloryandshine.com is a Catholic family-owned company making a variety of personal care products ranging from lotions, soap bars, gift boxes, body mist, beard care, and more. At Gloryandshine.com, they state their mission is to, quote, craft every product with deep intention while holding a vision of sharing the gospel. They are good for the body, mind, and soul, unquote. God love you, Gloryandshine.com. Thank you again. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. We're currently cruising at 39,000 feet. We'll turn that seatbelt sign off for you and let you move about the cabin. Looks like we're about two hours and ten minutes from landing. Plenty of time for you to meditate on Christ's passion. Wouldn't it be great if everyone meditated daily on our Lord's passion? Why not start today? A friendly suggestion from Guadalupe Radio Network. This is your producer, Adrian Fonseca, and today is a pre-recorded show, so, you know, no game show right now. Normally, right now is, we are in the middle of the game show, and we'd have a caller calling in, and we'd be playing the game, but not for today, because today is a pre-recorded show, so there is no phone calls for today, but be sure to call in on Monday, because the caller on Monday wins no matter what. Hmm, sneak peek. Okay, so... What are we going to talk about today? No, we are going to talk about the turkey indult. Have you ever heard of the turkey indult? Many people have never heard of this thing known as the turkey indult. So, let's talk about this. So, there's a rumor that's spread around the internet 
that's been going around for years at this point that Pius Twelfth gave an indult that on Fridays during uh, during the year, on Fridays after Thanksgiving, the people were allowed to eat meat. Why was this a, a theory? Well, there's a number of reasons for this. A number of reasons. One reason was that people gave. Now, remember, this is just a rumor. This isn't true. I will be debunking the rumor in just a moment. But one of the rumors was, one, the uh, Pius XII realized that, you know, uh, we had poor refrigeration and we made all this meat. We had turkey. We had ham. And so we had to refrigerate it. And there was not proper refrigeration. So on Fridays, they let them eat their leftovers from Thanksgiving Day. Now, that's not true. Just I'm throwing that out right now. A second rumor was that, oh, well, you know, this was a Pius XII gave permission to the bishops to be able to dispense as they saw fit, and the American bishops dispensed them, and so there is no uh, requirement to abstain from meat on Fridays. And the there, so there's a number of different rumors that float around in this kind of vein. Now, you may be asking, why on earth would somebody think that you had to, eat, you couldn't eat meat on Friday during uh, after Thanksgiving? Well, the reason is because traditionally speaking. Every Friday of the year was a day of abstinence, and it was only fairly recently where this uh, changed. And I will give you an example uh, of what what happened exactly here. So throughout the year, you would have stained from meat on every Friday of the year because why? Because our Lord tore his flesh on a Friday, and because of that, we give up flesh meat on a Friday. And this was changed, and I believe 19, the 1983 Code of Canon Law and the 1966 U.S. Uh, United States Conference of Catholic Bishops also changed it as well. Now, what exactly is, did it say? How, so how did this happen exactly? Well, the American uh, Bishops Conference in 1966 gave a letter called Pastoral Statements on Penance and Abstinence. And in it, it said, quote, this said, we emphasize that our people are henceforth free from the obligation traditionally binding under pain of sin in what pertains to Friday abstinence, except as noted above for Lent. So he's saying, okay, okay, you are not bound by sin anymore to abstain from meat on Friday, but we really think you should. But you don't have to if you really, really don't want to, but you still have to do it for Lent. So that's an important thing to note, that it is binding during Lent that we have to abstain from meat on Friday. It is a traditional practice, though, and so I encourage it for most people or for everybody to abstain from meat on Fridays all year long. But the, the, the church started giving out indults, which an indult is a, you know, an exception to a rule to say, you know, normally we have to follow these rules, but because of X, Y, or Z reason, we're going to take that, that obligation off of you because these are merely canonical laws. These are mere, merely church laws. These aren't moral laws. So the church has the authority to change these kind of things. So what, what would be an example of saying that the, that the church could not change? For instance, if the, the church could not say murder is no longer sinful, but the church can say you have to eat meat or you cannot eat meat on a certain day. So let's say Pope Francis came out today and decided, you know what? There, we're not going to have, we're not going to eat meat on Wednesdays anymore. I declared it as the, the power that's invested in me by, the, by being a Roman, the Roman pontiff. I bind all Catholics that they, on, by pain of mortal sin, you're not allowed to eat meat on Wednesdays. Now, that would then become a uh, mortal sin for us to eat meat on Wednesdays. Why? Because we, as Catholics, are bound by the canonical law. We are bound to obey the canonical law as far as we are able and as far as it is not an unjust law. And so... 
eating meat on not eating meat on Friday had been a law and throughout the tradition of the church forever and was only recently abrogated. Now, the Code of Canon Law 1983, Canon 1253 reads, the Episcopal Conference can determine more particular ways in which fasting and abstinence are to be observed. In place of abstinence or fasting, it can substitute in whole or in part other forms of penance, especially works of charity and exercises of piety. Now, this is typically understood. Now, th- this is a very highly debated topic of what this means exactly. Some people say, well, that means you have to replace your abstinence for Wednesday, on Fridays with something equal or equivalent uh, if the local Episcopal Conference determines it. And America determined that you can do basically whatever you want. And so you have to do something on Fridays. On every Friday of the year, you are required to do some kind of penance uh, in replace of abstaining from meat if you're not abstaining from meat on a Friday. Now, it is not binding by mortal sin anymore. So you're not committing a mortal sin. So if you've done, you have not eaten, if you have eaten meat on Friday in the past, you have not committed a mortal sin. So don't worry. Don't freak out. But I highly encourage in doing it. Now, the turkey indole. It is said because of this that every Friday you have to you have to abstain from meat. You know, American Catholics are like, oh, we really want to eat meat on the Friday after Thanksgiving. We have all this food that we cooked, that we made. And we can't eat it the day after. It was said that that was a, a turkey indult was given. Now, this is highly debated on whether or not this ever happened. But the common one common opinion is that there there was, in fact, one time in 1958 that the that there was a Thanksgiving uh, indult given. And I'll read to you from the question box of Father Daniel Brennan in a newspaper, was asked this in a newspaper in 1959. So a reader uh, wrote in, I'm wondering why a dispensation was not given for the Friday after Thanksgiving this year in 1959, or why one was given last year in 1958. Father Brennan answers in part, if you would insist that there is a good cause for such dispensation because the Holy Father granted it in 1958, I would remind you that the Pope does not need a justifying reason to dispense from mere church law. And in granting the relaxation and abstinence on the Friday after Thanksgiving in 1958, he set no precedent but granted a particular favor for a particular year. Okay, so that would imply that in 1958, there was in fact a turkey indole. In 1959, though, there was not one. So that would answer the question of, was there a perpetual one? The answer is obviously no. There was not a perpetual indole given. Now, this what does this have? What kind of implications does this have? Well, if you actually start looking into it, one thing that it turned out to be blatantly, well, not blatantly, but probably very, very likely false is the idea that Pius XII did it because Pius XII had died in the October of the year in which this would have happened. So instead, it's actually more likely that they, that John the 23rd did it, that Pope John the 23rd is actually the one who gave the alleged Turkey indult of 1958 because Pius XII died on October 9th, 1958 and John 23rd became Pope October 28th, 1958. So it would make the most sense. It's not sure. It's not certain, but it makes the most sense that it in fact was actually John 23rd and not Pius XII. So that's just a fun fact for you to know and realize. So should you, so the question, your question you're asking, you're like, okay, look, are we allowed to eat meat on the Friday after Thanksgiving? See or no? So the answer is kind of, sorry. I know, I know it's a cop out. It's a cop out. I'm sorry. I apologize. But the answer is kind of. So if you want to give up something else, we are not bound. So all this stuff about the historical uh, nature of what happened in the past is kind of irrelevant to what's actually happening today for us right now. 
Because what happened in the past is no longer binding on us because we have a new code of canon law. And this new code of canon law, we are bound by. And this new code explicitly states that we are no longer bound to do Friday penance in that manner. So we can do something else. So if you want to eat meat tomorrow, go ahead and eat meat tomorrow. But try to do something else. Not try, but do something else. Maybe get up in the morning and go to early to go to morning mass. Go get up right and early and go to the first mass at your local parish. And that will be your, your penance for the day. That'll be your, your act of piety for the day to replace your abstinence. Maybe pray four rosaries tomorrow. Or today, rather. Pray four rosaries today, and then that will count as your act of piety. Maybe give a special donation that day. On, on today, give a special donation, and that will count as your act of piety. Do something to to give God something, some glorious, something gloriful. So that way you can eat meat today. Or if you would like, it would just be easier for you. Just give up meat today. Don't eat meat today. And that would be the, to fulfill the obligation that you have. Now, it's no sin either way, but I highly encourage you uh, after today, you know, today you can do what you got to do. You're going to eat meat or don't eat meat. Well, God love you either way. But I have to encourage you. I have to encourage you. In the future, think about every Friday of the year, especially during Advent. Try it this Advent. Every Friday of the year, give up meat. Don't eat meat on Fridays for this year. Now, if it's a first-class feast, you know, the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, something like that, Christmas Day, those days, of course, you can eat meat those days. But think about it. Try it. Pray about it. See if God is moving you to start not eating meat on Fridays. All right, so that'll do it for the show today. We'll be back in studio on Monday with our regularly scheduled programming. So tune in on Monday. I hope this found, you found this informative and inspiring. So God love you. God bless you. We'll see you Monday at 6 to 7.30 a.m. Central Time and 7 to 8.30 a.m. Eastern Time. So God love you. God bless you. We'll see you back with our regularly scheduled live programming because, you know, today was all pre-recorded shows and we will see you then. Check us out on www.grnonline.com forward slash CDT. That's grnonline forward slash CDT to get all this content and more. And be sure to check us out there. Follow us on all of our social media platforms to stay in touch with us. God love you. God bless you. And have a great Friday. And whether or not you eat meat or not, God bless you, and we'll see you on Monday. Thank you for joining us on Your Catholic Drive Time, where it is our pleasure to keep you informed and inspired. Join us Monday through Friday at the same time, right here on your favorite Catholic radio station. Don't forget to connect with us. Just go to facebook.com forward slash Catholic Drive Time. Again, that's facebook.com forward slash Catholic Drive Time. Be sure to share more than just us today. Share Jesus with everyone you meet. Bye now, and God love you.